Welcome to Conversation Piece, the show where I talk to my friends and other interesting individuals about whatever's on their minds at the moment. I am your host, Patrick Armstrong, and if you are new here, thank you for listening and joining us, and welcome to episode two. You have not missed a whole lot, um, but if you are interested, you can definitely go back and listen to the other episodes wherever you get your podcast. Um, you're currently listening to this episode on November 1st, which means that it is NAM. NAM is an acronym for National Adoptee Awareness Month, which is technically supposed to be adoption awareness, but we have been reclaiming that title for at least the past couple of years uh, that I've been involved. And so when you hear us refer to NAM, we're referring to National Adoptee Awareness Month. Um, and because it is November, I obviously had a chat with another adoptee about all things that fall within this realm. Um, my guest today is a licensed marriage and family therapist. She is also a writer, an advocate. She's also an all-around awesome person, and we are both very good friends with Katie Gagel. I am very <laughs> excited to welcome Laura Summers to the podcast. Laura, thank you for being here. Hey, I'm so excited, Patrick. Thanks for having me. First off, I have to ask, how are you doing? I'm okay. You know, it is, um, we're chatting today. It's actually adoptee remembrance day. And that was on my mind today. Um, and it's always a little bit of a heavier day, you know, because of the, the topics, um, you know, we remember adoptees affected by suicide, um, by parenticide. And, um, you know, I'm just thinking about also my adoptee friends that I know, um, all of us carry that grief and loss and that impacts us really in really pivotal ways and just a really important day, you know? So how are you? I, I'm doing all right too. Um, I think that, yes, this day has definitely been heavy on my mind. I think that there's been a lot of other things in my personal life that have been happening mm. a lot that can pull or have pulled my focus to where I feel a little bit stretched, mm. you know, coming back from Korea, going to Dallas, um, just work in general. Yeah. And then my wife and I buying this house. Um, Congrats. Thank you very much. Uh, just a whole lot of different moving pieces. And then, yes, obviously, now I'm coming up, Adopt Your Remembrance Day, and then the tragedy that happened in Itaewon just um, on the 29th. Uh, that's just been a lot, I think, yeah. on my mind. So I took a nap today, and I felt <laughs> I felt very rested afterwards. But I woke up from a very strange dream that I'll probably write about later. But um, I don't know. I, I'm feeling okay. I'm excited for this conversation, as we've had to reschedule at least one other time. So I'm very Listen, excited that we can be here. It's a lot. It's a lot for me too. I totally get it. It's you know, need time to process all that. You know, definitely need time to process, and it feels like time is running shorter and shorter every day. So <laughs> I don't know. It's just like, where do we, where do we make that time at? And I'm sure we'll probably talk about that a little bit today as yeah. well. Um, yeah. Especially with the specific topic that we're going to be talking about. But before we dive into that, for those who may not know you, can you give us a brief intro into Laura Summers? For sure. For sure. Thanks. So um, I've been here in the adoptee space on mostly Instagram for the last three, three years ish. Um, and I, my handle on Instagram for those, I'm sure Patrick will put it, but it's Laura is a lot. And that's, that's a huge part of kind of how I found this community because like many of us, um, I grew up sort of feeling, um, out of place, um, um, misunderstood. And I think that just led me to really look into talking to other adoptees. I had a really great therapist who sort of like kept nudging me about adoption. And I was like, whatever, like, it's not a thing. It's just, just like a random fact. I like to share <laughs> about myself. And, you know, she was very, um, gently persistent, I think with that topic. And so, yeah, so I, um, I'm a mental health professional myself. And I, I know for a fact that certainly my experience with adoption led me into doing that. Um, and that work, I, um, I work a lot with trauma and, um, I do, um, all virtual work right now. Um, so I'm working from home and I had a baby in 2021. So he is almost 18 months now. And that's been super fun and another <laughs> eye-opening life experience. Um, and we recently moved cross country, we moved to California. So, um, that has been, a, a whirlwind. Um, but 
my passion about adoption is just connecting with other adoptees. I, I love, I just feel this kinship that I think a lot of us feel when we get to talk and we have so much in common. And, um, I, I stand by my belief that adoptees are some of the best people that I've ever met. They're just, they tend to be really warm and inviting and they tend to be very em- empathic and intelligent. And so it's just cool. It's super, super great community. And I'm really grateful to be a part of it. I completely agree on adoptees just being some of the most incredible people that I've come across uh, in my journey as well. And you shared a little bit about how you kind of entered into this world and got into this space. And I was wondering if you could talk more about or just share briefly about what your initial reaction was to entering into the community. I think that's something, especially for folks who are starting to awaken from the great sleep. I'll use that language yeah. uh, from Betty yeah. Jean Lifton. Um, <laughs> I think it can be very, even for me, it was very like, okay, how do I, where do I go? How do I move through this? And and it was kind of confusing and exciting at the same time. What was your reaction to first stepping into this world and then really connecting with the community? Yeah. Great question. It's so overwhelming. Um, like I said, I swear I had, had persistent therapists, you know, one in particular, but throughout my twenties, you know, um, I was kind of like, I read some Betty Jean Lifton and I was curious about it. And like I said earlier, I, I never really felt like I fit in. And so I was searching for that, you know, and I think that pushed me to kind of look at adoption more. And, um, the first intro into the online community was when I found Jay of I am adopted and I'd found her, um, just her website and her Facebook presence, I think. And I just started reading some of the stories that she was sharing. And Jay is, I mean, for anyone that's ever come in contact with her, she's one of the most encouraging, uplifting people. And she's, she champions the uh, importance of telling our stories as adoptees. And so I started thinking, well, maybe that is important, you know, that I share some of my experiences and my, maybe my voice does matter, you know? And so that kind of just propelled me into, you know, trying to speak up. And to be honest with you, I've been really lucky that I've been met mostly with super supportive, encouraging, um, feedback from people I've had in my life, you know, friends, um, family, everybody has been encouraging and, um, there's been, you know, there's a little bit of pushback, certainly, especially around that narrative piece that people cling so tightly to. They really (laughs) want to believe that it's the best thing ever. You know, some of them have a hard time with that, but I think, um, in terms of speaking up, I've been encouraged and, it really, I started out just like a little post here and there, you know, that was kind of where I started out. And then that all really propelled for me when I got into reunion mm. and reunion for me was like barn doors busted wide open, you know, whatever metaphor you'd like Pandora's box, you know, the whole thing. It was very true for me that, um, as soon as I dipped my toe into that, um, I ended up finding my birth mother on ancestry and, um, Again, I've been very lucky that I've been able to build a relationship there, but um, I really kind of feel like I'm just now coming out of that fog, Mm. you know, because it's so much to process and it's such a significant loss. Um, And so, yeah, it's, I really, I think the coming out of the fog thing, you know, I, I don't know if I always identify it, but it definitely to me, so far, it's like, there's just, there's layer after layer, you know, you just keep going, you don't ever get there. And, um, this community has been a constant for me through a lot of that. And, um, yeah, just one, one step at a time, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And it is like the never ending onion. Like you said, there's just layer after layer. And every time you think that you've found your center or you can't go any further, something happens. That's like, Oh, I can go a little bit further. I just had one of those moments in Korea where I was like, Oh, I didn't think I had any farther to go. I was just kind of building where I was at, but Oh no, I can definitely, definitely continue to propel forward. Like you said. Um, okay. So I have two things kind of mm-hmm. that I wanted to ask you off of that. Um, mm-hmm. the first one was, 
you 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 entered into this online space like you said three years ago or just a little over three years ago mm-hmm. um i think that I entered in about a year and a half, maybe two years ago. And I feel like even in that time, it's kind of exploded. But I do feel like that three to five year period ago was when adoptees really started to like make a mark, like what Mm -hmm. Jay was doing, what Haley Mm -hmm. Radke does. You know, I were really starting to push out further. How have you, have you seen a big shift in what was going on even three years ago to now? Yes. Yes, I do. And I, and I think this is important actually. And I think this goes into what we're going to talk about for, I think there was a really pivotal kind of awakening, certainly within the adoption world, but also I think collectively as, um, the Western community that our country, you know, there was a lot of stuff that got stirred up, um, with the George Floyd kind of that, whole Black Lives Matter movement. Like there was just a lot of like kind of reckoning I think people were doing with um, systemic issues that we have in this country and adoption fits in, it touches every single one of those issues. And so I think, I think certainly for me, but I know for a lot of my um, transracial adoptee friends and international adoptee friends, that was just like, whoa, yeah, this is a thing, you know, and adoption's another thing on top of it. And, um, so I think, I think that has been an impetus for a lot of us to like kind of peel back that those layers and really look at what are we championing here? You know, like what are, what are we really celebrating, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and how does, has that affected us? Um, I've learned so much. I think especially in the last year and a half, two years that the TRA community has exploded and I am mm. infinitely grateful for that because it's exactly what this community needed is for those voices to take over and just really help us all understand, um, what adoption has been and what it could be, you know? Sure. And I think it, yeah, I think that's really, what is so interesting about it? Because I feel like on one hand, especially for me being a Korean adoptee, which is feels like it takes up a ton of space in the TRA atmosphere, I'll say. Um, and it can feel like a lot of times we try to take on the whole of adoption as like being our experience when it obviously mm. is very, very diverse. And, and you know, they're, they're, people come from all over and are affected by this. And But I do think that that I hate to use the words racial reckoning because I don't think that the reckoning actually happened more of an awakening. <laughs> yeah. I think more yeah. of an awakening of it, yeah. especially for, for the TRA community has been really, it's been really profound. I think um, only because you only had, I feel like the smattering of folks of color specifically who were adopted really, pushing on not only the narrative, but like the scholastic pieces of it and even the socially public parts of it of sharing. And I guess maybe feeling safe enough to share. Mm -hmm. And so I I appreciate you naming that because I do think that that part of it is something that we can't overlook. Um, But even in like, you know, I just recently found those words like the waking or waking up from the great sleep from Betty Jean Lifton, even that like that's coming from 1979. Like (laughs) there's still so much to uncover or that we can uncover that's been done that we don't talk about in adoption because it doesn't necessarily conform to that narrative that we have. Um, and then again, I keep, we're going to get to the specific. (laughs) It's all related. (laughs) You keep bringing up so many, incredible things and I didn't want to blow past this, but you talked about reuniting with your birth mother. Mm-hmm. And you also mentioned that you like last year became a mother yourself. And so I was, I was wondering if you would be open to sharing just a little bit about what that experience has been like yeah. navigating both reunion and new motherhood kind of simultaneously, I yeah, would say. Yeah, I don't know for sure. That. For sure. Yeah. You know, when I think about, we were, we were talking about, today an imposter syndrome for me, this is really a huge point of Mm -hmm. imposter syndrome because the bond a mother and a child have, um, adoption has really complicated that for me, you know, in understanding like, what does that look like? What does that mean? Um, there, something I've learned about reunion is there's always going to be some things that my adoptive family 
has as far as that bond, I'm always going to have things there and I'm always going to have things with my bio family and neither can really touch the others. You know, there's, mm. there's a, there's like very distinct relationships there and bonds there that, um, and that's, that's hard. That's hard to have kind of, I mean, I really do feel like a split person sometimes, you know, like, um, there's been a lot of push and pull with those parts of my identity and becoming a mother, um, I spent a lot of time like downplaying those biological connections for myself because I didn't, I still don't have the legal right to know that. Right. Um, because my adoption was closed, but, um, you know, I, I think for the way that I handled that as a younger person was, it's just not that important. That was how I, um, dealt with that and becoming a mother, obviously that, is not going to fly anymore. <laughs> that, uh, that had to die a very quick death, right? That, that, uh, that excuse <laughs> is not, um, valid and, um, being able to, it's really been incredibly healing to be able to build a relationship with my own biological mother while becoming a mother myself. It's, it's been incredibly, um, there's been a lot of chances for, healing and we can't go back. You know, I still have 35 years of my life where I didn't have that connection. Um, but I've been able to confront that loss in a very like real time way, you know, Mm. seeing with my son and I have to be really gentle with myself at times. You know, there are still times where I feel really overwhelmed. Um, when we were doing, he wasn't a good sleeper right away. And we were, we started out like, maybe we need to sleep train. It was like, I can't do that. I can't, I can't do that. You know, like there was a, there was something in me that was felt like buried deep that I could feel very, very present where when he would cry, it was this sense that I cried and no one came. Right. And it's, it's still really hard to talk about, you know, it's just, just grieving infant essentially that I carry in myself. And seeing him real time, I confronted myself real time. And it was just like, it's, it's still really hard. You know, he's been sick a lot and just, you know, trying to be there for him. I've had to embrace sort of that like infant part of myself, you know, and acknowledge that it's, it's there. And that's really hard. It's really, really hard. It never goes away. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I, one, I appreciate you sharing that. And I think that something that's really not interesting. Maybe it's more devastating is the fact that we get, as we become adults, as adoptees become adults, we continue to be infantilized. We're not seen as that adult. And so when we do adult things, especially like becoming parents, you know, we, especially if we haven't confronted these things already, like we're almost going to have to, it's almost inevitable that these things will come up. And I appreciate you sharing your experience because I, I just appreciate you naming the the difficulty in having to not only do that and find the find your way to healing and find healing, but the fact that that doesn't just come with becoming a parent or be or entering into reunion. I wrote today about the breaking out of the binary. We've talked a lot about it on the John Chi show. I, a lot of adoptees talk about we get boxed into this duality of good, bad, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. this, or and, or, instead of it being both and, and the other, you know, exactly. there, because there are so many things that are going on with that, with adoption, with, and, and not even just with our own experiences, and not to bring in other people, but, you know, you talked about navigating not only reunion with your birth mother, but becoming a mother, but you didn't talk about, or, and there's no, but there's also that third party of our adoptive families and you right. have to navigate that. If you haven't already cut ties for whatever reason, you know, yep. like people go through that experience as well. And, and so we get blamed for that experience, for that decision. Right. Exactly. And it's, it's in, it's assumed by people that don't know that that was something that we wanted. And I think that that's such a misconception. I can promise you that a, that a person that's gone through the devastating kind of loss as an adoptee doesn't want to have to navigate another layer of loss like that. Exactly. Exactly. Like that's the whole thing with the narrative of it being about like family making when it truly is not. It's about family separation. Like adoption Mm -hmm. is about that is about the separation. And why would we knowingly want to separate again and re and 
honestly probably not realize that we are suppressing more and pushing yeah. down more yeah. and harming ourselves further. Like nobody wants to do that. You know, no. we don't ask for that, but we are put in positions where we have to make really difficult choices for our own safety and health and well-being. Yeah. And yeah. those things are the things that come of it. And those are conversations that we have to continue to have. And you touched on it at the very beginning. And I think this is really bringing us forward into the crux of our conversation. But specifically, you mentioned imposter syndrome and yeah. that. So I, I actually, before we really dive into it, I was wondering if you could define what imposter syndrome is for our listeners, yeah. whether not, not overarching, I suppose, but just like your definition of what imposter syndrome is specifically as an adoptee. Yeah. Yeah. So my understanding of adoption or sorry, imposter syndrome um, is, you know, this, this sense that we, the desire to be an expert or to be seen, taken seriously in something and this ultimate fear underneath everything that will be found out that we're actually an imposter. Right. And I think, um, as, as you and I have discussed, um, as an adoptee, it kind of fits right in. And I, I remember probably like six months ago, there was a, there were a lot of imposter syndrome posts kind of going around the adoptee verse. And we were kind of talking about it as a group. And I remember thinking like, yeah, but like, other people's idea of imposter syndrome is so different because they have that innate, you know, for, for people who are not adopted, they have that innate belonging. They have that, you know, um, I would hope a lot of them, right. Like, um, and maybe they didn't have to navigate family or cultural separation or racial separation. Right. And for us that do, um, I mean, I think, I think when we understand and we take a step back into what that experience is like, of course we feel like imposters, right? We, I mean, in some ways we are. And the way that we've had to survive is to try to pretend like we're not. And that is crazy making. Honestly, a lot of us end up in the mental health system. We get a lot of labels and stuff. Um, And it is crazy to think like, well, I kind of had to fake it till I make, till I make it, you know, to like, just make it out of there or whatever, or just figure out who, until I could figure out who I am. Right. And, you know, it's just, it's very confusing, you know, it is very confusing. And honestly, hearing you talk about it like that. And I, in our live show this past weekend, I, kind of equated it, not imposter syndrome specifically, but talking about adoption or adoptee experience as being really relevant to Han, the Korean concept Mm. of Han, which Mm -hmm. I've heard defined as a loss or a lack of identity. Mm. And I feel like not only as a Korean adoptee do I really resonate with that, but I think as adoptees overall can resonate not only with just the simplest or the simple label of lack of identity, but the fact that that is foundational Mm. to our experience. Mm -hmm. And like you said, you know, other people can feel imposter syndrome. I know for a fact, I've read studies about, especially particularly in the Asian American community of feeling this imposter syndrome, especially in the workplace. Um, But again, we, our, our brothers and sisters from immigrant communities have that fallback. It's Mm -hmm. not, it's not like you said, innate, it's not initial to, their experience, at least from my perspective of, of, of the uh, immigrant experience specifically and second, third generation uh, folks as well. Um, whereas for adoptees, that is like it, you carry that separation, that scar with you from the moment that you're separated, whether that's at two months or at five years, exactly. you, you have that there with you. And especially for later adoptees who get adopted, who were adopted at five, six, seven, or I guess even kids in the foster care system who get placed into adoptions or foster homes at older ages, like that still develops there and yeah. you're still being separated from your family. Yeah. Um, and it is hard. And yeah. I don't know. It's like it's hard to. It's sometimes it's hard to describe, but even more so than that, it's just hard to experience and feel. And yeah. you talked about get, gaining community, and that's something we talk about all the time. Is like we don't have to necessarily explain it um, to where we kind of just get it and can understand that story. Um, and so, 
you've talked about imposter syndrome showing up in your own experience. I was wondering how you have went about flipping the script on what imposter syndrome had or feeling those feelings. And then it's like, what have I, what, what do you do to combat those things? Yeah. Well, I think, I think, First of all, I kind of mentioned like we, I, I kind of said like, oh, we are imposters. And what I mean right, by right, that right. is we've like tried to fit in and we've tried and many of us talk a lot about like people pleasing as like the main way that we try to do that. And, you know, we can talk until we're blue in the face about that people pleasing is bad, but I think people pleasing is adaptive. And we don't, we don't talk about that enough. We don't talk about the fact that the things that we do to survive are kind of brilliant, really, you know, at their core, they're, they're necessary at minimum, but I think they're also, they're skills that we have. I mean, there's a reason why so many of us are so able to just like talk and connect. And it's, sure. it's a lot of it is that, you know, that we've gotten really good at trying to fit in wherever we are because we don't carry that feeling of belonging with us in innately, like you were talking about. It's a, it's something that we've had to build. So I've tried to flip that script on looking at that as highly adaptive and really like something, a, a skill that I have. Right. And, um, and that, that also maybe, maybe there are times where having two families is a blessing. Is it all the time? Do I need to like wear a t-shirt like with gotcha day and like, <laughs> no, there it's extremely complicated, but, but you know, it, it can also feel like a gift at times to have, have people that love me and have a community that, that can be good. I've also needed to make space for hating all of it, mm. genuinely hating all of it and not needing to stand up and defend adoption. Um, especially over the last year as a woman and a mother and an adoptee and all of this row stuff, it's like mm-hmm. a, many of us have been screaming from the rafters. Like we're not doing this y'all. We're not, we're not here to make you feel better about family separation and we're not going to champion, you know, more adoption as any kind of solution because we live it and we know that it's not. Um, and I, yeah, I just, I think, you know, I've needed to make space for the multifaceted experience of what it really means to be adopted. And I've really needed to put myself and how I feel first, because that's not, that was not my go-to. I was not good at that. I was much better at trying to figure out what other people were feeling, what other people needed. And that's kind of the dark side of that, um, people pleasing skill is, 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 you know, doing that. And so really like trying to make a conscious effort to be like, no, how do I feel about this? How has this impacted me? Um, and that's, that's, that's hard. That's definitely not something that I'm as good at. I'm much better at being like, well, how are you doing? You know, (laughs) hence the therapist thing. (laughs) No, absolutely. And yeah, I, I completely agree that I've been having this conversation with my wife actually about how do we take care of ourselves first. And if we're truly wanting to show up for other people, you know, we have to be able to take care of ourselves so that we can show up. Especially Uh, as a parent. Exactly. And so, you, you, you know, you talked about, you know, asking those questions, but how have you went about putting yourself first? I think that when people hear that, uh, a lot of times, especially right now, it feels it can feel very self-serving or selfish, mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. and people can have the wrong idea about what that yeah. means. You know, yeah. how how have you found yourself doing that? Well, unpacking the systemic messiness has been a huge part of it. Because here's the deal, and you know this, I know you know this, but adoption at its root is really founded on a lot of the principles of white supremacy and whiteness, not like the color of our skin, but those ideas that keep that narrative so heavily, you know, powerful, essentially in the adoption, you know, world. And I've had to really separate myself from that. Right. And Mm -hmm. understand that, you know, being nice is not the end all be all, but I was, we are, we're all indoctrinated right? In this way. And I think part of how adoptees are indoctrinated is we put other people first, you know, and 
unpacking that has been super important because like you said, especially becoming a parent, like you can't, you can't go on if you keep doing that. I had a really dark period in my mid twenties when I, and this was very simultaneous to when I was kind of starting my journey and unpacking adoption. And I had to have a come to Jesus moment with myself. Mm. You'll forgive the term, (laughs) but it was, I mean, it was like, are you going to keep doing this? Because you can't, you can't live. So I had to decide, am I going to live or am I going to take care of myself? Right? Like, am I, am I going to continue to live for other people or am I going to choose to live the life that I want? Um, and that reflects who I am as a person. Um, and honestly, when we get deep and dark enough to when we're not living for ourselves, I mean, that's a lot of that is addiction. A lot of that can look like really unhealthy relationships. I'm, I'm going to try in the next six months to a year to, to do some kind of series on abusive relationships and adoptees, because I think Mm. that happens a lot. Um, and I certainly went through that. And so it's just like, you know, I had to really stop and, and choose. And I'm lucky that I do think that there's some really like stubborn, tough grit, you know, and in my personality and my DNA also, as I get to know my bio mom where we don't give up and that's, Mm. I'm glad but I also have a lot of resources. I have a lot of access to resources that other adoptees I know and love do not. Um, and so, you know, it's all, yeah. it's hard. It's hard. I like that every time I think at the end of all of our responses, we end with it's hard. And it I is. Think that hopefully, <laughs> I mean, that being that this is the November episode, I think that that is hopefully something people take away, especially from outside of the community is that this is a difficult thing and it's an ongoing thing. And you're not Um, broken if it's difficult for you. I think something that, right. Like I think when we talk about imposter syndrome, there's an implication underneath that, that this shouldn't feel hard. This shouldn't be this hard. You should be able to just like, again, white supremacy, pull your bootstraps up. That's totally similar, right. Of our, that kind of indoctrination. It's like, all right, just get over it. Well, no, Right. Well, and you look at, and it's like, again, it's, it's just this cultural thing, this Western cultural society yes. of this, you look at someone else who's done it or is doing well in their life. And you're like, why can't I do it that same way? Like, why yeah. isn't it coming this easy? And again, that's part of our ego, I think, wanting to do that. But especially as adoptees, it's because we've always given. And I think honestly, like a, a, a parallel to where my experience can parallel my wife. So she's a teacher. Mm. And I think it's a, a lot of educators give all of themselves to their students and for to nothing. the school <laughs> for nothing. And then, to, and, but don't give any time to themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think for all, for 30 years, that's exactly the space I was living in was just to give, give, give. And then I would question myself as being like, why aren't you happy? Or like, what, what's wrong with you? Like myself, you know, having that discussion and instead of it being like the come to Jesus moment, it was really, it was more of like I was scolding myself Mm -hmm. and I wasn't realizing like those things, those wheels and gears weren't turning to be like, no, it's not you. It's the, it's the system or the situation or circumstances that you found yourself in that have constantly kind of reinforced that you owe it to everyone else to operate in this manner. Amen. yeah. And so for folks like myself at that point, you know, you, we, 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 I think it's a privilege that we've unfortunately had to have those like eye opening moments where it's like, okay, why are you doing this to yourself? Let's try and figure this out, you know, and not to take away from the, the amount of work that we have to put in to get to that moment or the, the amount of hardship or, or, or negative experience that we feel that brings us, that lays us so low that we have that moment, mm. you know, I think it still does carry with it a little bit of a privilege because like you said, we have an access to resources. We might have a support system that while we are internalizing all of this guilt and shame and, and anger and, and whatever else and, and putting it on ourselves, people from the outside might, have are trying to help us in certain ways um even if that's we don't know that it's adoption related that's what we're trying to uncover um for folks who maybe 
don't have that support system or are in this moment of struggling with imposter syndrome, with having that co- that self-conversation, that self-reflection of, you know, are do you want to continue doing this? What kind of advice would you give to those adoptees, if you, if any, you know, that because, again, all of our experiences are ex- extremely unique, even though themes in our lives are similar. And so I don't want it to make it seem like you or I right. have the exact advice, you know, and I don't want it to make it like I'm like, Laura has the advice to how you can overcome imposter syndrome. But this this conversation is so important, right? And having right. and understanding the nuance, right? And right, 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 right. I think that's such a good question. So as far as like whatever advice I would say, I just I would just say it's okay if you don't, if you decide not to go there. I've had some adoptee friends that I think they kind of dip their toe in and they were like, I'm not ready for this, or this isn't, this doesn't vibe with me, or this isn't my experience. There's nothing wrong with that. And it's okay. And like you and I have been talking about, we're all affected by this differently. Um, Mm. just like we don't owe the greater, um, you know, society, to gr- gratitude for being adopted. We also don't owe the adopted community some kind of grand awakening. Sure. It doesn't, doesn't have to be that. It, it does not have to be that for you. And um, yours doesn't have to look like anyone else. You can actually be grateful to be adopted if that's how you feel. You know, I, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. I think there's just so much to this. And, um, this can take, this will take the rest of your life, right? Like we've been talking about. And I think all of us, as we've started awakening, we've had to take breaks. We've had to be very conscious about, you know, I'm not going to push out because I know Patrick, you're like prolific with your content and you're, <laughs> you have so many side projects and you're like, go, go, go. And you, you were talking about being overwhelmed. Well, yeah, it's super hard, overwhelming work, you know? And I, I, when I first, woke up to all of this, I was pumping out a lot of posts and I was doing a lot of stuff. And it's like, I got to a point where, okay, well now this isn't going to overtake my life either. Mm. You know, being adopted is not the end all be all of my identity. Right. Uh, I appreciate you sharing that because I think that's something, especially that it especially when you like approach the community for the first time and you like, Oh, this is what I've been missing. You can, it can feel like it takes over yeah. uh, everything in your life. Yeah. And I think and for me, it does. It does. And that's it, normal. It, yeah, for sure. A hundred percent. I think that's a hundred percent normal. And uh, again, I've known adoptees as well who are like, yeah, I'm okay with this for now. Yeah. Like I've yeah. got other stuff going on. Um, on the flip side of that, what advice would you give to adoptive parents or friends, family support systems, and how they can either help or listen or hear the adoptees in their lives who are struggling with imposter syndrome. Yeah. I think um, we always underestimate the the importance of just empathy and listening. Um, I mean, as a white woman, like going through all this that we've been talking about, you know, I think there's this idea that you have to have the perfect thing to say and you have to have, you can't make a mistake. And you, I mean, again, that's another kind of thing that we've all been indoctrinated into that the mistakes are like, and as an adopt for an adoptive parent out there, like just being there and, and sitting there being silent, being present is so huge. It's really hard to do too. We don't talk about that. It's hard to do. Because we, that like feeling like we're uncomfortable, we need to say something, but, but just working on the reason that adoptees say like, you really need to get your stuff. You need to look, work on your stuff as an adoptive parent is because if you don't, we suck it up like sponges as adoptees. Right. And so just part of that work is to work on being able to be present without needing to be perfect, without needing to be, um, the parent that they should have had. Cause it's not, mm. that's not possible. Right. You can't do that. And you know, you shouldn't be expected to do that. Right. And, sure. and many of them are, they're, they're kind of expected to do that. And, and I think, um, we don't need you to be our first families, biological families. We need you to be the parents that show up and are there and are consistent and, um, you know, reliable. And I think that that, that is huge. Um, so that's my, 
you know, advice as far as for adoptive parents, if you see your adoptee struggle and they will, they will, even if you don't like actually see it, um, the struggle is important, you know, it's, it does, it is scary. I'm sure as a parent to see that, but it's really important that they get the space to, to do that because we can't base our identity around other people. Um, that's when life gets dangerous and, um, yeah, it takes a lot of space and time to do that. And just having those like safe people, like you've been, you talked about earlier, we, we need safe people. Mm-hmm. I think that, I mean, that you've shared, you've dropped a lot of dimes and a lot of gems in this conversation. And I think that one right there, we don't need you to be the parents we should have had, man, that hit me right in my gut. Like mm-hmm. that is a powerful, powerful thing. And something I think that adoptive parents don't hear like because it's either it was either like assimilate fully for a long time until probably the mid 90s and then it was well you need to be the culture too and i think it it just went from it went from one extreme to the other and that's not possible we can't yeah it's can't do that like you said we shouldn't be asking that of them at the at the end of the day again it puts them in this impossible situation places them on a pedestal i think um that they don't ask for and then when those struggles come up and when that does happen because there was a question or i'm getting ready to speak at a school and one of the questions they said the adoptive parents have is how do we they're parents of a of of korean adoptees specifically Mm -hmm. but how do we get our get adoptees to take part into culture without it seeming like we're forcing it on them Mm -hmm. and i've been trying to think about what the answer is to that question and i want to say thank you on the podcast because it'll come out before that conversation but this i think that's the answer it's that you can't try to be this person that we you thought we should have had or you thought we would have had at some point and now it's you we need you to be yourself but also being willing to support us in in these myriad different ways that Mm -hmm. are coming up and i think the fact that they're going to this type of workshop you know shows that they're at least willing to put their foot in the door whether or not they open the door completely and step through is a whole other thing. But um, yeah, I think that's, and, and again, I think it goes back to, to us as adoptees trying to be this person that we yeah. think we should be instead yeah. of just being ourselves. Yeah. Cause now we have not only this expectation from our adoptive parents, but we carry the expectation of ethnicity when we enter into, or for transracial adoptees, when mm-hmm. we enter into different ethnic spaces mm-hmm. um, and are expected to inhabit this identity. And then also as just people who grow up in America, like we are expected to act a specific way as quote unquote Americans. And so, you know, we, we have all of these things telling us who we should be and when you hear that, when that's being reaffirmed over and over again from the moment you arrive or the moment you're adopted to the moment that you have this great awakening, like, of course, it's going to be difficult to try and like unlearn all of that and come back from all of that. Because for the most part, it's not happening until you're mid 20s, 30 years old. Right. Um, for some people, I do think it's happening quicker. And I'm shouting out all the young adoptees who I've spoken with who are having these conversations in high school. I'm like, I don't know how you, <laughs> where you got this courage and this wellspring of, of, of wherewithal or whatever it might be to do this. But I can only commend you because yeah. how did I couldn't even imagine if I had the language to articulate this stuff in high school, how I would have that conversation even. Right. Because that, I mean, it gives me pause and it's, it's scary to think about. It is. And that, that's that's the thing like to see kids now already having that conversation and questioning their parents in these specific ways or challenge not questioning but challenging them um in this specific identity this adoptee identity in this journey i think is amazing it's incredible it's amazing that's like huge kudos to them ultimately when we look into just as a reminder i feel like to all of us right like i need this reminder all the time looking into adoption issues, anything related to that is grief and loss work Mm. at its core. And that's really, really hard work. There's that word again, (laughs) 
But to me, it's like I, you have to, it's like willingly looking into the abyss, right? Mm, Yes. It looks like endless darkness and it looks like it's never going to feel better. Um, I've had a lot of, just from a personal standpoint, I've had a lot of loss this year and um, I lost my dog a little earlier this month. And I had him, thank you. I had him for 12 years and... At the first day, I went through the same, some of those same feelings of grief and loss that I was feeling when I really started unpacking adoption. You know, that just like, just deep physical pain, um, the fear that I'll always feel this way, the fear, you know, and anytime I, I find as an adoptee, anytime I go through any major change or any, any big loss, I feel those feelings. And I always confront that same fear that I'm always going to feel this way. And a really good reminder for all of us is it doesn't last forever. It is a process and all emotions like evolve and they, they are able to teach us things. They sit for a while. Hopefully we can make friends with them in some way. Hopefully we can learn from them some way, but it doesn't last forever. And um, there is an immense softness and belonging on the other side of grief. And I think, um, obviously when I say other side, we're, we're talking about like, it's right. not, it's not like, Oh, it's over now. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> like, right. You got, you get in and you find your peak, you come out of the valley yeah. and then it's like, you probably you go into another valley at some point. You will. But, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it, it's important to remember that. And I think, um, any of these feelings, especially when we're talking about imposter syndrome and not belonging, you know, we have periods of feeling more connected and more, um, okay than others in life. And that's normal, but it's especially normal as an adoptee. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what other advice we could give other than, you know, it doesn't last forever. And I appreciate you sharing that, especially, and then sharing that about this recent loss, you know, I've still been, dealing with and processing the loss of my grandmother. And um, mm. I think that I think I hadn't articulated or heard it articulated in that way before. But I think whenever I wake up or I have these feelings, it does feel like I'm going to feel this way forever. And it this is never going to go away. And it's going to be it's going to be this devastating and terrible forever. Yeah. And while I do think that those things will be there for a long time. And like you said, you know, once we, we can turn and look and, and turn and learn how to like walk with those things and, and process and manage those things. I do think hearing that, you know, that you aren't going to feel that way forever. And knowing that thinking that we will feel that way forever is almost can almost feel like a disservice, not just to us, but to the memories of the people or whatever it is that we've lost. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I had, I hadn't thought about it that way before. So I, I appreciate you articulating in that way. And that's one yeah. of the reasons I wanted to have you here on this podcast. Yeah. One right. of the things I think when we talk about, um, like that narrative, right. We, we, we should be grateful is ultimately, I think what that's based on is that we'd be grateful that we have people that love us and that we have mm. a family. And that's, that's not a bad thing. I mean, I think we can agree that yes, ultimately, having people that love us and having people in our lives that we care about and that have, have known us for a long time is really amazing and important, but defining that for ourselves is where that grief and loss comes in, right? Like that's the work that we have to do is how do, how do, how do we carry that? And how do we, um, find, find, um, meaning in that versus based on other people's ideas and, and needs and beliefs, right? Right. That's, that's the work. That is the work. How do you, do you have any like specific tips that you'd give for carrying grief and loss? I mean, I think just giving yourself as much space as you can, you know, um, and space can look like different things. I think sometimes it's active. Sometimes it's like, okay. Um, you know, self-care is obviously a huge buzzword thing, but it, it evolves and it's different. Mm. It's sometimes it's different every moment, right? Like sometimes I'm like, Oh, I have this idea. I need to work out X amount of times a week or whatever. And I wake up and my body feels like trash. And I'm like, actually (laughs) 
maybe I need to rest today. You know, it's this like constant checking in with yourself. Really the way that I think about it, just based on the work that I've been doing is I think about that infant part of myself and that just like I care for my son, it's moment to moment. I need to do that same thing for myself. Mm. I don't know instinctly that he's going to be hungry every, like he's not a robot. It's like, sometimes he's hungry. Sometimes he's not hungry, you know? And so I'm not going to like shove food down his throat if he's not (laughs) hungry. Same thing with me. I'm going to try to check in and genuinely be like, okay, what do I actually need? And what not like, what should I need? Or what do other people think I need to be doing? And if you think about how society is, society has a lot of its own ideas about what we need to be doing. Um, You know, I love modern medicine, but modern medicine can have very kind of like black and white ideas about what health looks like, right? Sure. Especially when I think about like the fat community, right? And that that kind of the body positivity stuff that we've been thinking about. We've mm-hmm. had this idea that obesity is innately, like if you're this size, you're unhealthy, right? right? We have a lot of ideas about that and in our society about what is unhealthy and what's not. And ultimately we kind of need to like strip it all away and figure out what we need. And and that's, that's a task. It is, right. again- hard <laughs> yes. it is hard because it is like literal structural dismantling and replacing with again stru- for lack of a better way to say this but replacing it with structures that work for us instead of against us and exactly. we talk about systems being broken like the systems that we operate in aren't really broken they're just not made for us or for the majority of people to maneuver in yeah. they're meant to withhold from the majority so that a certain level of person can further their own aims. For sure. They're they're operating exactly as intended. Right. And we're, we're just supposed to fit into that and um, go with the flow and don't be the squeaky wheel. Right. Exactly. And you wonder why not only adoptees, but anyone can feel imposter syndrome. It's because we're trying to, we're trying to live and be and belong in systems that don't want us. Right. They weren't here. They're not here for us. They're not asking for us. They're slapping labels like diversity, equity, inclusion on things and saying, hey, we we are for you. But when you look at executive leadership, it's all white men and maybe yep. one woman. Yep. And so at the end of the day, the only way we can or not. Well, one of the only ways that we can find ourselves truly moving forward in that direction is if we can pull these things down and place or replace them with stuff that works for all of the people who need these things. Right. And I wanted to thank you, Patrick, for your post. You did a post about, you know, during NOM, really the point of NOM should be to put adoptee voices first. And you've always been a really big champion of that. I want to thank you for that because I think that that's part of the work. When we talk about the systems needing to change, that's the biggest piece, I think, when it comes to adoption that needs to change mm-hmm. is that those voices are put first. Yes, we've seen an awakening. We've seen more, but I'm our, we're already in this community and it can be a kind of a bubble, right? right? Because we, we just, Oh yeah, people are speaking up. It's great. But when we really zoom out, we're still not getting enough adult TRAs being paid for their work in speaking on panels. We're still not getting enough adoptive parents who are willing to be quiet and sit down and hire the people who are experts in living adoption, which would be adoptees and birth mothers, right? Exactly. We're not getting enough of that. And that we're always needing to push for more of that. And especially now when we've highlighted these systems, we've like stirred the pot. We're like, oh, this is really messed up. Um, what do we do? There was a, there was a post that just was going around about this woman. She was a white woman who was really angry at this like community meeting. And she was up there and she was like kind of yelling. And, and I, everyone was like, Oh yeah, I really like, like she's what she has to say. And all I could think of is black women have been saying that forever. Mm. Right. And like here we're this, she's getting all this traction. She's getting all this like going viral. And it's like, that's, that's the shift that still needs to happen. We need to be putting the voices first that, that um, haven't been given that platform. 100%, 100%. I think I know what the the video you're talking about. And while it's a great video and a great message that she's yelling about, uh, you're exactly right. Black women have been doing this for literally ever. Forever. And (laughs) And then they get get vilified for being angry. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. 
Exactly, which again, very parallel to an adopt and not saying that they are the same experience by any means, but just how we get labeled as angry or ungrateful when we speak up about the system of adoption itself. Yep. And we question grow being or for a TRA growing up in a, a colorblind household. You know, it's like, oh, well, you are ungrateful. You should be happy that you were are out of the terrible country that you were born into. And it's like, well, hold up a second. <laughs> um, yeah. And then to your other point about us speaking in a bubble, that's another thing that I've been talking about a lot. And another reason I made that post, because I really want to challenge our community to be willing to put themselves out there a little bit more. I realize it's uncomfortable and you obviously want to like build your skills and speaking, but like we can do that and it takes just the ask or at least the pushing um, on some of these people because at the end of the day, what I've noticed, and this is my perspective completely and people can are very well and free to disagree with me, but I feel like as, as we've seen this explosion in adoptive voices in the last two years specifically, but two to five years, I feel like all of the things that we do and all of the audiences that we are really talking and speaking to are just other adoptees. And while that's really good and great because we uh, adoptees need that, especially people who are waking up to adoption and, and starting to ask these questions, they need these entry points into it where they can only be, they can be in adoptee only spaces. However, when we talk about changing systems, in dismantling these things, we also have to speak to people outside of our community. If we're not doing that, then we we run the risk of just being in the echo chamber of our own conversations and not really getting to the people who have the currently have the influence and power to potentially make a change or help us make the change. Yeah. Um, and especially when it comes to adoption, like I don't adoption's not going away. I don't think. Um, I think Jaron Kim talks about it very eloquently and excellently yeah. about um, like guardianship versus yeah. like the the abolition completely of adoption. I think it's too ingrained into all of the systems the uh, 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 globally for it to just go away in the way that we want it to go away. But for companies like a Netflix who offer their employees money and funding to go adopt for adoption agencies for organizations that help either facilitate adoptions or do crowdfunding and, and, and crowdsourcing and whatever the case is like okay if you're gonna do those things and you're not gonna stop because of what we're saying then you at least should be listening to us and we know you have the money to make this happen so let's make it happen Right. I mean, what happens for those same employees you're talking about for those companies, right? Hmm. What happens if one of their employees is pregnant and, and for whatever reason is struggling with resources, whether Hmm. that be support, mental health, addiction, whatever, what about those women, right? Why is that not championed as much as quote unquote building families, the way, which is the way that they're looking at this is, is championed. And I, that's a, that's a systemic issue that again, it's every single you know, um, poverty, racism, you know, all housing, all of these things, um, touch adoption. And, um, yeah. And I mean, really, unless we like solve those problems, you're right. It's not going away. You're a hundred percent right. And it's like, and that's the thing we always ask. So a lot of, again, you talked about, you brought up Roe before and like the whole, like when all of that was going down, it was like, well, wouldn't you rather have been adopted or aren't you glad you weren't aborted? And not only are those questions harmful, they're the wrong questions. They're very wrong. Yeah. Why are we at, why, why are we having asking mothers and families to make this decision in the first place? Why are they having to choose to even think that I have to give my child away for X, Y, or Z reason, right? Whatever you want to put it as, because like, the assumption—you're yeah. right, exactly—that is the question. And the assumption under that, what they're really saying, I think, and I, I'm sure some other brilliant person on Instagram said this, and I'm just not remembering who. But I feel like what they're really saying is, you're not wanted. Sure. That, that they think that every adoption situation is an unwanted child. Sure. And we've certainly busted that myth wide open, right? We're like, no. That's not, I mean, I can tell you right now, that was not true in my case. And as a, as a woman who has been pregnant and has had a child, we are not built to not want 
children. I mean, you get to a certain point in your pregnancy and it's not long. I will tell you where you, that's not a thing, (laughs) you know, your body is and your mind and your heart and everything you've already, you start building that bond so soon. You don't have a point in your pregnancy where you're like, nah, six months or whatever. I just don't want this kid anymore. Sure. We know better than that. We know better than that. It's you, it's, it's a, and that's a huge structural difference in how we think about adoption, unwanted versus like we need support, you know, my talk straight. <laughs> <laughs> well, and again, I think, uh, and this, I think to wrap all of this conversation yeah. up, I think it brings it full circle when we talk about <laughs> that narrative and mm-hmm. like what's driving this, the narrative adoption is driving it. And the yeah. fact that you have 70 years to really lay in like what, or for transracial adoptions, but specifically just any adoption, like really lay in what that means. It's hard to overcome. You mm-hmm. can't overcome that. No. And so, um, well, Laura, I really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing so much of not only your own story, but just advice for other people, not just adoptees, but adoptive families, friends, um, on how we can confront and acknowledge imposter syndrome in our own lives and how mm-hmm. we can overcome that or at least start to recognize it and overcome it. Um, before we go, I have one more question I have to ask you. And I only asking this because I know that she's going to listen to this episode. Um, can you give us a little bit of an origin on your Katie Gagel friendship? Katie Gagel and I are <laughs> twins, basically. Um, Katie is a unicorn in a human body. I love her infinitely. She... Katie and I were kind of woke up to the adoption thing at the same time. And so we kind of, we got into the adoptive adoption verse together. And honestly, she has been one of my best friends through all of it. I mean, you know, doing your own work, like the roller coaster ride that it is. And I think if, if I'm going to add any other little like nugget of advice for, for adoptees out there is find your people, Mm. you know, and it's probably going to be a small group. And for me, it might, it's like two people, you know, Mm, and, and that's great. And that's, there's so much there. Um, I actually was going to mention this when I talked about my dog, Katie, and one of my other really good adoptive friends, uh, adoptee friends, Lainey, um, they sent me like really thoughtful gifts when I lost Mm. my dog, like really just like they understood like what that loss meant to me. And, um, yeah. Katie is my person. I just don't really know how else to say it. Like, um, we're not in a relationship, but like, <laughs> you, I love her, you know? Yeah, right. Right. Oh yeah. It's starting to sound like really creepy now, but like, I, I just, I genuinely like, she's awesome and she does so much for this community and, um, yeah, she's a, she's a national treasure. She is a national treasure, national treasure for she should be in the TV show that they're making on Disney plus the remake of that show. She is incredible. Um, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Like Katie was one of the reasons I found not only the space on Instagram, but found folks like yourself, like Jay, like Hannah Jackson Matthews and just, she's a connector. And I like, I really appreciate you saying that how much she does for the community, because I think she does even more than people realize behind the scenes. Like you said, just reaching out to you, building, not only having that relationship, but just sending you a gift uh, as you're going through a really difficult time, I think is something that we don't think about doing. Like I'm a bad gifter and, (laughs) you know, she has given me, I think probably three unreciprocated gifts at the moment. So like, I got to get on that, but Katie has been not only a champion for myself, but a champion for, everyone that I've come across yes. and in this community. And she would hate and every second of us talking about her. Hate every 100%. second. Yep. I wish we could do more talking about it, but mm-hmm. I know your dog is trying to get into your room currently. <laughs> so um, for in the interest of your dog's needs and wants. Yes, um, of course. That comes first. Laura, <laughs> that, always, that always comes first. Laura, where can people find you if they want to follow on your journey or reach out to you in any way if you want them to? Yeah, just Instagram. That's really the only place I am right now. Um, Laura is a lot. And Perfect. yeah, I, I welcome relationships with adoptees. I think, again, adoptees are my people and I'm happy to chit chat with people and point you in the direction of resources you might need. Um, Katie is a great one. You're a great one, Patrick. Hannah Jackson Matthews is a great one. 
Jay is an amazing one. Um, you know, there's just so many incredible people. I'm really, really grateful to, you know, get the, get the chance to chat with you and, and yeah, just keep the community going, you know? Absolutely. We will definitely keep it going. Laura, thank you again. I can't thank you enough for sitting down because again, you were one of the people who gracefully worked in a reschedule when I was having a really tough week. And so I think, again, that's something we didn't talk about, but goes into this whole community, finding your people, finding people who will support you and lift you up and, and, and meet you where you're at when you need it. So I can't thank you enough for that. I can't thank you enough for this conversation. I'm so excited to be able to share this on the first, which is today. I don't know why I said that, but um, <laughs> anyways, you can find this podcast on my personal Instagram at Patrick in the world. You can go to buymeacoffee.com slash Patrick in the world. If you want to support me in this work on the podcast, uh, you can follow me at John Chi show for the other podcasts that I do. And other than that, you can expect another episode to drop in about 15 days, uh, that 0.5 episode. And then in December, we'll have another one coming. So other than that, Laura, thank you so much again. Thank you to everybody who's listening and everybody who is sharing so far. I really appreciate your support. And we'll see you in a few weeks. Awesome. Thanks, Patrick.